Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Welcome to Upfront on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Flo Lloyd-Hughes. I'm Chloe Morgan. And I'm Rachel O'Sullivan. Today we're taking a special look at the monumental day for US women's football as the national team finally settled their equal pay lawsuit against the US Soccer Federation. But is it really the big win it's been reported as? We speak to Rachel Backman from the Wall Street Journal to find out more. So US Soccer has said it will refuse to sign and ratify either of those agreements if they don't equalize pay going forward. So essentially what this settlement relies on is not only the finalizing of the women's collective bargaining agreement, but also the US men's teams. Plus, we preview Man City and Chelsea's battle in the Conti Cup final this Saturday. It was a fun weekend of Vitality Women's FA Cup fifth round action. Um, Rachel, you were at the crazy game that finished with absolute scenes I think that clip that someone shared I don't know if it was the video that you shared but there was a a video that I kept seeing on my timeline that's definitely gone viral of that header in the last minute of extra time so there was ours and there was someone else's um Ian Wright chaired ours no big deal um (laughs) but I think it was the other person who got chaired by Vitality Cup but yeah um I had the video out because I basically wanted to film you know, Ipswich celebrating. It was the last minute of extra time. So I wanted to you know, film them celebrating the win and the crowd and stuff. Yeah. And up pops Rendell to, to just head home. Goalkeeper heads home in the oh, final man. minute, like last kick of the game. And I managed to capture that. So that was pretty cool. Um, Probably the most exciting part of that game because they kept the goals till very, very late. Uh, But yeah, they, they ended up, um, Ipswich ended up winning it on penalties. Um, So it got quite exciting right towards the end. I was going to say as well for Ipswich, I mean, like psychologically for Ipswich to feel like they've almost thrown the game away, having been seconds away from getting through to the next round, to then compose themselves and win the pen to shootout. It's pretty impressive. And goalkeepers, heroes are the stars of the show because not only did a goalkeeper get the equaliser, but then a goalkeeper also was the star in the penalty shootout. So what a day for goalkeepers, eh? I think my biggest concern actually is that they've raised the bar for goalkeepers. Um, <laughs> Expectations are too high now, if anything. Yeah, I think it's that. I mean, we're always also expected to do distribution and you know saving goals as well, and you know all those other things. And now we're expected to score goals in the last dying minutes of a game. So it's um, come on, guys, yeah, let, let the rest of us the standards you know, chill are too out. high. Come it on. was it was quite funny because we actually interviewed her on Thursday before the the game, and we were just chatting to her about like her career and her excitement for the game and and who she looks up to and why she likes them as goalkeepers. And she was saying they've actually she named she's like, Chloe bloody Morgan. I was going to say what an honour. <laughs> she was saying they actually got a few assists, which is really cool. And we were like, oh, so maybe on Sunday you can get an assist. And she was like, I've already got one this season. So we jokingly said, oh, you're going to you're going to have to do one better. She bloody did. Wow, she is. Edison who? She is the techers. Um, you were in sunny Sunderland Again. on Sunday. A lot of suns. Yes. Uh, finally, you could play that game. Whoop, whoop. Yes, we did. Stay, yes, we stay did. the pitch was... Not frozen this time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, did it rain? Really good. Uh, no, it was sunny. Oh, nice. Weird. It was quite good weather on the weekend, actually. It was lovely. Yeah. A, little, a little bit of wind, a little yeah. bit cold. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could almost get a tan um, yeah. on it. It was, um, it was quite nice. I didn't have too much to do. But, I mean, it was a great game. We obviously won the game 1-0. It was a really, really hard-fought, tough battle. Um, but we pulled one out of the bag in the uh, in the second half and, and went home and, and celebrated, yeah, the the the, uh, the win after the second travel up there. And how's the finger? Fine. Now, pretty much all recovered. Oh, uh, great. A little bit battered and a little bit sort of, like, knobbly. Okay. Um, but otherwise, <laughs> what are you laughing at? Nothing. Sorry. <laughs> no, it looks fine. Beautiful. It looks fine to me. Very nice. Um, well, let's get stuck into the nitty-gritty of this week because we're going to get a little bit technical, but we did really want to look into the US Women's National Team's settlement with the US Soccer Federation. And we wanted to kind of go in deep about it and get Chloe's perspective as a player and also kind of look at the long-term impact of it. So we know that uh, us ourselves, maybe not the best experts in this, we're obviously all UK-based as well. Um, So in order to kind of get a better perspective on things, we have gone to some of the pros. Um, But it's been a long journey for the US Women's National Team to get here. Um, They filed this lawsuit 
six years ago, but last week they finally settled on that uh, on that suit and come to an end on it. And perhaps it's just the the beginning on some other things as well. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been an interesting thing, shall we say? Yeah, and uh, we wanted to speak to someone obviously who's been at the heart of the issue, um, get some real insight. So we chatted to Rachel Backman. She's a, a sports reporter of the Wall Street Journal. Um, and we wanted to properly understand what this landmark ruling actually means and what needs to happen next. Well, this battle essentially began decades ago with um, members of the U.S. women's soccer team being upset with how uh, they were treated by the U.S. Soccer Federation. Um, it advanced uh, about six years ago to a formal federal complaint and then three years ago to a lawsuit, um, which expanded into a class action lawsuit, eventually encompassing about more than 60 women's players. And um, what's uh, essentially what the women were alleging was that U- the U.S. Soccer Federation illegally paid them less than members of the men's national team um, and provided unequal you know, facilities, travel accommodations, etc. Um, so th- those were the stakes in this lawsuit. What this deal does is um, the U.S. Soccer Federation has promised to pay the women who sued $24 million to settle all legal claims. Uh, $2 million of that is sort of a discrete fund that uh, the women can, can apply to for sort of post-career projects and goals um, and furtherance of girls and women's football. But generally, this is back pay for um, what the women have alleged is, is unequal pay. So um, in that measure, this is, uh, you know, you, one could say this is a victory for the women because they are getting some back pay that they say they were owed. But two, they have said all along that they want to change the pay structure for women going forward. And um, according to this settlement, and if it, if it does um, indeed go forward, they have achieved that. Um, and so you have two parts. You have this, this settlement amount that's going to go to, as I said, um, 61 players. So it's, it's not only the players who were named in the lawsuit, it's others who joined the class action. And um, also, you know, the, the players who follow them, U.S. Soccer has pledged um, what, what it says will be equal pay. Now, we haven't seen what that means in practicality, but that, again, the, the devil's in the details, but if the women have achieved um, that second objective, that is equal pay going forward, um, and including World Cup prize money, by the way, um, I would say that's a pretty profound achievement that will conceivably affect every U.S. women's national team player in the future. So this is all resting on the U.S. Soccer Federation and the women's players agreeing a collective bargaining agreement. Can you explain what that actually entails? Yes, well, that is a contingent, a contingency for the finalization of this uh, settlement. So, um, and it gets a little bit more complicated because, as I mentioned, this, there's this prospect of equal pay that U.S. Soccer is trying to meet. So... Um, U.S. soccer has said ostensibly that the U.S. women will have to agree to a collective bargaining agreement, which is the ongoing labor agreement between the U.S. women's team and the federation, the U.S. Soccer Federation, um, before this deal will be ratified and finalized, before they get any money. So that needs to happen. But separately, U.S. soccer has also said that it it will refuse to ratify any collective bargaining agreement. And here it's important to note that the men's and women's teams have separate players' unions and separate labor agreements or collective bargaining agreements. So U.S. Soccer has said it will refuse to sign and ratify either of those agreements if they don't equalize pay going forward. So essentially what this settlement relies on is not only the finalizing of the women's collective bargaining agreement, but also the U.S. men's team's collective bargaining agreement. And, you know, taking a step farther back, um, I think followers of football know that Generally, in the women's game, um, many women's players, and this is true in the U.S. as well, tend to get more of their income from their federations than from their clubs, because women's clubs tend to be younger and tend to pay less than, for instance, men's clubs, which in many cases are a century old and pay more, much more mature uh, professional market. So in the U.S., um, you know, the men's team collective bargaining agreement expired in 2018, 
this is not a team that's acted with a lot of urgency to update that agreement. And it's, it's, it's generally because most of those players, if not all of those players, make more from their clubs than they do from U.S. soccer. This is particularly true in recent years when, of course, the U.S. men's team didn't qualify for the last World Cup. So, um, you know, it, it, it made probably less than, definitely less than it would have had it qualified for the Russian World Cup. And um, so that arguably their, their um, income from U.S. soccer is, is even less important in recent years than it has been in the past. So that's sort of the complex backdrop to this. And it's a very big caveat to the actual execution of this settlement. Yeah, really interesting to hear from Rachel there, get the insight from the States as well. Um, it's complicated, we will say that, um, because there's obviously lots of lots of elements on it. There's things that have been backdated to do with World Cup prize money, to do with salary over the last few years. So it is very complicated. But you have to say, short term, it is, and long term, there is a lot of positives to take from this settlement as a whole. Yeah, it's a step in the right direction. It's been a long, hard fight. You know, it didn't kind of start recently. It's been going on for years and years. Um, So we're definitely moving in the right direction. Um, I mean, I do think it's interesting. We've got a a lot of teams around the world now who are already moved, have already moved on to equal pay. Um, So you're kind of looking at that and saying, catch up US a little bit, um, which is weird for a team that's been the guiding light for, for so long. But yeah, it's about time. It's definitely a step in the right direction. But as you say, it's it's complex and I don't think it's quite all over the line and maybe the way it's been reported. I think it's been a, it is a significant step forward, but I think there's still so much more that needs to be done. But I think, you know, when you look at the progress of how the claim has been, it was never, it was never an easy battle for them starting out in 2016 and then they had the claim dismissed. And I think, you know, along the way, if anything, it's, it's managed to highlight, um, you know, some of the inner workings and the inner thoughts of, you know, the, the US Soccer Federation. I know the former president sort of came out in some of his lawsuits and uh, in sort of response to the lawsuit uh, and, and said that, uh, you know, there was a claim that the, the men's players deserved more money because of their, the strength and skill and things like that. So I think, if anything, the lawsuit has really highlighted the inequalities that exist. And I think now they've actually got the win, which obviously is not as much as they, they initially expected to get. I think, you know, I think their initial filing was back for 67 mil. Um, but again, this money is going to go a long way in, in recompensating those players for, for money that they, they deserve to have. So it, it is a big win. Yeah, and Rachel touches on the fact that obviously we know in women's football these international contracts are more valuable for players because this is where they're going to earn the most money and because the domestic game isn't as developed like it is in the men's game these are these are crucial um and that's why this CBA agreement which is kind of the the next stage of this settlement in order for the US team to kind of get that next pay is is relying on men's team negotiating a CBA, but they don't necessarily have the priority. I mean, without getting too stuck into that yet, I wanted to chat to you, Chloe, about about negotiating contracts. Obviously, Rachel and I have absolutely no experience with this when it comes to being a player. I've got, I mean, I haven't got much experience anyway when it comes to kind of things in general, work in general, because I'm not signing multi-million dollar contracts. But um, one day, one day, we <laughs> hope. But yeah, I mean, tell us kind of, tell us what it's like when you, I mean, how does it work? Is it, you know, some players will obviously have an agent, but are you given the contract? You have to go away, look at it. Do some players just sign? Is there someone who's put forward as the main spokesperson? And and how has it played out for you and how might it play out for national team? Um, I think it's a very varied answer because I think it, it basically does depend on what type of player you are. Um, sort of previous knowledge and experience of contracts um, and also the kind of reputation and status that you have as a player and whether you have representation yourself. So for me, when I get the contract through, I mean, we get the same one pretty much every year. It's the standard FA worded contracts that the WSL players and the championship players get. You know, I'll read through the contract and to be honest, I, you know, I've read through it so many times this year and it's, it's never changed. I don't know what I'm expecting to, to pop up. You never know. They might put some kind of like in. small print in there, like a little dodgy something. Yeah, that I just, just want to make, make sure. sure. Yeah. Not allowed to do podcasts. Yeah. It's that. Chloe has to go to me. Sunderland every Sunday. <laughs> you don't want that. For no reason, just to be away from the squad for the week. But yeah, I think the the kind of lawyer head in me is very much. I'll always go through the the contract with a with a fine tooth comb myself. Um, and obviously, I've got an agent, uh, Joe, who's amazing. Um, and I'll sort of speak to her and say, you know, I'm not too happy with this, or or what's the situation on this. And then she'll have the negotiations on my behalf with 
uh, is someone the GM, um, the general manager of the club, who will who will sort of come back and say, yeah, we can move on this, or, or no, we can't. But it does depend on your status as a player. If you're sort of you know just coming into the in, into the championship, or you're not one of the more well known players in in the WSL, your bargaining position is obviously mm. a lot a lot lesser. If you're you know Meadmar, if you're you know Beth Mead, you're you know one of the big you know top names. I think you're you're probably in a much better um, bargaining position. Um, but there's, there's, I, th- I think that's the issue. I think with the championship and and the WSL at the moment is that you know some of those players aren't represented, and also some of the players in those leagues are very young. So what you're starting to see, I mean, I've had a couple of the sort of younger players in my team come to me for sort of contract advice, and you know they're starting to engage agents now. But you know there's also a fear as well that you know you're going to get some agents who aren't particularly. Um, you know, they don't have the best morals um, and they can take advantage of a situation where people aren't, you know, they're not used to reading contracts. You've got younger players who've not seen a contract before. They don't know their rights. They don't know what they're entitled to. So it's uh, it's definitely an area that's progressing, but one that's sort of a, a bit fraught with danger at the moment. And what was so powerful about this lawsuit is that, you know, so many players came together because they knew that there was going to be, you know, strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been a case where you've kind of come together the group, as a group? And obviously we saw that with Birmingham City over the last year or so, where they realised they needed to come together to take, take a stand in order to improve things. Has there ever been a moment where you've been in a squad and you've come together and you've said, right, this isn't working for us. We're all not happy about X, Y, Z. You know, let's come together and take that forward as a complaint or whatever. Uh, and you know, how hard is that to do as well? Um, it's very hard. I think if I use my experiences at, at Spurs, you know, when I left Spurs, I was quite vocal. I, you know, I sent out a tweet to say how unhappy I was about the conditions, the treatment that we'd been given, um, you know, at Spurs at the time, there were instances where we weren't allowed to use the men's car park. There were instances where we were using a, you know, a gym that didn't have the correct facilities and we were sharing it with the public and, you know, where we weren't allowed to use the same pitches as the men and things like that. And and they were all things that, you know, behind the scenes we were really unhappy about as players. But it's very hard to stick your head above the parapet if you're the only one who will do that. Because, you know, you can appreciate, especially as, you know, as younger players or players who are getting game time, you're rocking the boat if you go and speak out publicly against these things. So often that you find the one or two players might feel comfortable doing that, potentially older players um, or players who are coming to the end of their their playing careers who aren't too fussed about the implications. But for younger players, it's quite hard to to speak out and get a sort of collective agreement amongst players, which is why I was so um, sort of proud and impressed with what Birmingham City had done and, and written that letter to say, Do you know what, we're all in this together. Things need to change because they can't you can't you can't sack an entire squad. We saw that as well because you know obviously with the the US team, they're so well known. They've been so successful still incredible that they came together in the numbers they did but you've seen other teams who maybe don't hold that same kind of power with their federation actually standing up and saying this is unacceptable Ireland did it they threatened to boycott a game because they were having to they weren't you know they weren't getting paid they had to share tracksuits with some of the younger um, teams there was reports of them having to change in the airport so that the under 18s or the under 19s could get the tracksuit you know stuff like that so what's incredible is when you see those teams who maybe don't have the same power or notoriety at the time, being able to stand up together and kind of say enough is enough. Because when we talk about equality, we're not talking about money all the time. And that's mm-hmm. something that always gets thrown in our face is you don't deserve to be paid the same amount as the men. But, you know, it's about facilities. It's about opportunities. And that's where the equality needs to be across the board. Yeah, and I think what's what's been important in this case is that, you know, players like Megan Rapino have always been quite vocal in saying, this is very much not just about us, although we're the names in the filing. We know that this is about a legacy that we leave behind for US women's national team players to come after us, which I think is fantastic. And I think, you know, that's the most important thing because a lot of those players have made their money, you know, and, and they need to think about the future and the generations to come. I think the the one critical eye that I shine on this um, is that because of the situation in the States with the end of Brussel, and with the way that contracts work over there, is that the domestic game is still so weak that there's only a finite number of women that are ever going to benefit from these new contracts or this payout. Um, and you've still got players, although the new CBA with the end of sale players is fantastic, I think the minimum salary is now going to be $35,000, a 60% lift. You've still got so many women's footballers in that country who are literally earning the bare bones. And the same could be said in England, like so many players who are not earning, you know, barely enough to to, to live. Um, and there's a finite window of players who are ever going to make the most in the international kind of 
contract situation. So it you, you want to see that kind of long-term vision where you say, right, now you've got US soccer at the table. How can you make an impact in the end of Bissell as well? Because I can't see that beyond this about about the US being held as the prime example and, and a brilliant example of national federations paying players what they deserve and for what they've achieved. But at the same time, like there's still that separation for the domestic game. And, you know, that that is going to encourage more federations to step up. I'm sure of it. I'm sure it's going to have a wider impact. And, and Rachel's going to touch on that as well. But I, I just want to see more in that domestic game. And I know it, I know people probably say, oh, you're being overcritical. Like, you know, this is great and you need to kind of take a moment to appreciate that. But I do think at the same time, like, you want more and you also need to, you need to have that reality that so few people are ever going to get the opportunity to play for their national team. And it shouldn't be that only playing for your national team is how you make enough money. Everyone should be able to be a footballer and earn enough money. I don't think you can underestimate the impacts that improving or increasing the uh, the sort of average wage across the the league will will have. So I think even obviously in the WSL, some of the leagues or some of the the wages that you see are in the sort of you know the teens, the the low twenties, and you know if you want to get the best out of a player, um, you know paying them the absolute bare minimum, especially for for clubs or you know especially in London where obviously the price of living is now going up and petrol and all those other expenses and national insurance and whatever. But also being an athlete is a very expensive job. I mean you do need to normally have a car you need to have insurance you need to have you need to be buying the right foods good food in um every week so you know you, you can't be paying people the, the bare minimum because you know you, otherwise you're going to be in a situation where you've got players who are more worried about whether they can pay the rent and pay the bills than how they're performing on on the field and I think that that is I think that's such a brilliant point that you know you can't just focus on yes this this um award the settlement is fantastic for the women's national team but at the same time it needs to be there needs to be more focus on on the domestic league because I think that is obviously what's going to grow the talent to get into the the national the, um, the US yeah exactly team and in I, the first place. I think it's always going to be difficult as well because of the way that the US league is run that you know players are are contracted to the, the the federation so there's always that kind of weird situation whereas here it's you've got your club salary and you've got your international federation salary and it's like the two kind of complement each other and add to each other mm-hmm. whereas the, the contract situation there is is kind of almost holding back that development because it's like mm. well the, it's almost like the national federation is always going to trump it's always going to be the most important and they're also paying your wages so it's like you you don't see that development filter down um but I don't want to obviously get bogged down in that too much but I mean we were talking Rachel before we recorded the show about prize money and uh, and how you know a, a, another bigger picture of this is making sure that it filters down because obviously for the US team, it's already quite a wealthy nation. It's already quite a prosperous women's football programme. They've obviously won a lot. And a lot of this lawsuit was tied up in the lack of prize money as well of winning the World Cup and how, you know, um, the men's team didn't even qualify for the 2018 World Cup and, and the women's team should have received the the bonuses for winning, uh, winning the tournament. So for me, when I see improvements in prize money, it has to be an increase in the prize pot. And it's the same with the FA Cup, it's the same with a lot of these tournaments. It has to be an increase in the prize pot because nine times out of ten, the people that are going to win the competition are already the rich. And the rich are only going to get richer if you keep that end figure as the big one and it doesn't filter down. So it's that distribution which is so huge. But, I mean, do you guys think that this will also have an influence on FIFA coming ahead to the next World Cup next year and thinking, right, well, we're going to look at increasing things as well. I mean, I think they already have as well for, for the next World Cup. I think they already have announced what it's going to be for uh, for 2023, but looking further ahead. Yeah, I should hope so, because, I mean, this is a conversation and a narrative that's been going on for a long time, but this is probably one of the loudest voices in women's football, not only speaking and pushing it forward, but in essence, winning winning this landmark deal. Um, so it should absolutely influence future discussions around prize money. And we talked about it being, yeah, as you said, across the board, not just increasing it for the winners because, you know, FIFA expanding the tournament, just adding more teams isn't necessarily 
going to grow the game. It's it's got to be about investing in those teams so that those teams can go on to invest in football in their own country. Just kind of throwing them into a tournament to be absolutely trounced potentially isn't actually going to necessarily help the growth of the game in that country. So I think definitely, I do think this is going to help that conversation. I do think it's going to help other clubs, other countries feel strong and powerful enough to speak up and say, this needs to be better. Um, and yeah, I think looking at that prize money and how it's spread across all the teams that qualify is more important, I think, than just the ultimate prize. I agree. I think I think it was only in January, actually, the FA announced um, that they were going to increase the prize money for the FA Cup from next year. They've not said what that yeah, will be. We still don't know, but we are, we are waiting. We're we wait very interested. <laughs> Jinx. Um, but I mean the only way is up from absolutely nothing that they're yeah. paying at the moment um, but I think that's obviously been something that, that has been in the headlines now for, for quite a long time because you know when you look at the disparity in the FA Cup prize money I know there's something that was touched on in, in previous episodes and I don't want to sort of go back over it again but it is just absolutely phenomenal that you're in a situation where you know 25k to 1.8 mil I mean the disparity is just is just absolutely ridiculous but you know like you were saying I think the prize pot money is the thing that needs to be increased because you know, when you look at the types of teams that are now getting into the FA Cup quarterfinals, you've got Ipswich there, you've got Coventry, and they've already, you know, Ipswich probably don't have the best budget, and Coventry, as we already know, have been in quite dire straits financially for for the last year. You know, them going to those games is going to cost them more than they'll actually recover if they drop out at, at this stage. I think the recovery that they only get is about three or four thousand pounds, and the cost of travel and accommodation and food is going to outweigh anything that they would even get if they won. And you know, if a team like Man City or Arsenal does win the FA Cup, which they're probably expected to do, they'll be out of pocket for winning the FA Cup because of all the expenses that go with it. Because twenty five k is not going to have covered them for all the games that they would have needed to get there in the first place. Yeah, I think it's also really important because I think what's been great about this settlement is the fact that it was very transparent. They were very open about the figures. They were very open about the final kind of solution that they came to. And I think for me, what is frustrating is so many federations have come forward and said, oh, we now have equal pay for our men's and women's team. But actually, when you look kind of at the Mm -hmm. small print, it's actually, well, you're not, it's not equal pay. You've got equal percentages of tournament bonuses, so they're not going to be equal amounts because the tournament tournament prize money is different, or it's it's equal in other ways. You know, it's like a pay to play bonus or or for qualifying bonus. You know, it, it's never actually equal, equal. pay, uh, and I feel like now because because of this incredible thing that the U.S. Women's National Team have been doing for a number of years, which is building this movement around equal pay, you know, chanting at 2019 World Cup final equal pay, like what was it, forty thousand, fifty thousand people. I think now it's like equal pay has become almost like a a brand name Mm -hmm. uh, for people just to throw out and say, oh, it's equal pay. Um, But actually what that means is so different. Like you said, Rachel, like it's got to mean something more. And you were kind of looking at an interesting article where someone was saying, you know, it actually could set. A, a, dangerous bit, a, a dangerous president. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just shout out to my stepdad. He very kindly sent me this article from NBC um, because my parents now, anytime they see something related to women's football, will screenshot it and send it to me, which is very. My mum does. She, she's like, oh, they She texts me going, oh, they're talking about equal pay on Women's Hour on Radio Four. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I love Thanks. it. I love it. Um, but it was a really interesting point about the precedent it sets because a lot of this came down to the fact that the women's team were so successful. It almost gave them more of a stand to to fight this battle. But that shouldn't be the level that you have to be in order to get equal pay. You shouldn't have to outshine your men's team in order to have equal pay. And I think that's maybe a little bit of the murky area. We, you know, we shouldn't have to have all of the other national teams outperform their men's teams in order to be able to fight for equal pay. Um, so there is a little bit of a dangerous precedence there because I think anyone emulating the success of the US women's national team you know I'm not sure that's going to happen now with the growth of the women's game I'm not sure we're ever going to have a team that is we have that much of a hold yeah yeah the world cup exactly so while yes we should be pushing for that equal pay it shouldn't be based on them performing to some insane level in order to get it yeah I think it's um 
I, I completely agree with you there. And just to sort of jump on the back of, of what you said is that, you know, you can't have equality based on results. It should just be that is a, a blanket thing that is provided and, and provided as, as a standard. Um, you know, and I don't think you could ever be in a situation. I know with, you know, clubs I've been at previously have been very much of the same kind of ilk where you say, OK, well, if you finish in the top three, you finish in the top five for this season, then we can we can then go to the board and ask for X, Y and Z. And it's like, well, that shouldn't be the case. The board mm. should be providing that anyway. It shouldn't be dependent or contingent upon certain results. That's not how equality works. So, um, yeah, I think that's a that's a really interesting point. I do think it is hard to to compare to compare the two, to compare the US to to other um, nations and other, I guess, continents as well, um, given they are in quite a unique position where the national team has obviously recently earned more money than the men's, which we've said. So, you know, it's not quite that direct comparison to the WSL or, or other European leagues. So we asked Rachel Backman what the rest of the world can learn from the US women's past and how they've handled the current situation, because there's definitely plenty we can learn. The US is singular in its history, right? The women have won four World Cups, no other nation has done that. And it has this enormous following in the US and really globally. So in some ways it is unique. In other respects, I think what the US women say that they're fighting for is really for these federations, both nationally and internationally, to live up to their missions. And let's remember that these are nonprofits. These are ostensibly nonprofit organizations that are supposed to fulfill the mission of spreading football throughout the world and growing the game. Well, historically, the women's game has really lagged behind. And part of the reason it's lagged behind is because of a lack of investment of these national and international federations. In some cases, in the case of, of Britain, for instance, it's because women's football was banned for about half a century. So women are still really playing catch up. Um, it's almost like you have, you know, two trees and one tree was planted, you know, 60 years before the, the other one. And one was, was watered every day and the other one was watered maybe three times a year. And people are asking why they're not the same size. You know, I think it's, it's pretty elementary why they're not the same size. So I think part of what the, the women are saying is, um, look, we're, you know, yes, we are unique in, in the world perhaps, but, um, a lot of these federations really have fallen short of their missions in spreading spreading the game and have largely neglected half the population in doing that. Um, and by the way, if you look at a lot of the growth in terms of viewership and um, you know excitement in the game, a lot of that is is in women's football. The you know the men's World Cup is a largely mature event. It's it's massive. It's it's a huge money maker. It's massively popular. Absolutely. Its viewership really hasn't grown significantly in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, while the women's game, partly because it was coming from much farther behind, has, has grown much, much faster. So if you look at the women's game as sort of a you know, startup stock, it makes sense to invest in it now because um, it's shown this huge growth potential even without much investment. So it raises the question, well, how much bigger could it get? How much more money could it make for FIFA and for the federations? the FIFA represents if it were invested in a bit more, if it's if it's watered a little bit more like that tree. Some say the US Soccer Federation needs to be more forward thinking. The current president of the whole organisation is an unpaid volunteer. Would you agree that the federation needs to be more modernised? The current president, and it's an elected position, and you're right, it's unpaid. The current president of US Soccer is a, is a former women's national team player named Cindy Parlo Cohn, and she has another job. She also coaches... A, in a youth league, and um, it's it's startling that you know one of the largest soccer federations in the world has a leader who has to do this, but that's the reality because she does not make a salary. Um, so I think it's a it's a valid point and a valid concern, and I think it makes sense that there's a proposal on the table to make that a paid position because if you go decades back, you know a lot of these sport federations, not just soccer but in other sports and so on really were run like sort of amateur organizations because all the people they were representing were ostensibly amateurs and so on. But sports has really evolved from them. And, and you know, Olympic sports, most if not all Olympic athletes, you know, generate some money on the side, either with pro careers or with sponsorships and so on. So, you know, Olympic sport under which football falls um, has really evolved way beyond that amateur model. But I don't think U.S. soccer has kept up. I mean, some years it generates 100, you know, $150 million in revenues. And 
that's just, you know, that it's just problematic when you have a volunteer leading an organization that size sometimes. It just seems a little bit nonsensical. You wouldn't, you wouldn't hire a volunteer to run a company that generated those revenues every year. So um, as far as whether there's a model, I don't know if anyone's doing it perfectly. Um, I think this is, a, this is a challenge for all federations, but um, it makes some sense to have a, a leader who, um, who, who is paid, I, I personally think, just because otherwise you are in a position of either having someone who's time pressed because they have to have another job or you have you know, only someone who's independently wealthy can afford the position. And neither one of those seems like an ideal situation. So what can European federations learn from the US women's experience? How can they improve things like access, fair income for those who are involved in the women's game? I think, you know, a combination of approaches sometimes works the best. So I think it's fair for women to ask um, what the, you know, what the FA, for instance, what the FA is investing in women's football and, and how and why and whether that whatever that amount is and whatever those actions are whether they're appropriate given where women's football is and where you know the fa and other people want it to be um you know i I think there is this sort of balance between the the national teams and the clubs and it sounds like my impression of europe is um the european clubs are um you know fairly quickly starting to invest more in women's football because they they also see a potential for revenue so that's, you know, that's also the good. Um, but, you know, women are, you know, they're trying to grow in a very crowded sports environment. You know, when, when the Premier League began more than a century ago, I mean, what was previously the Premier League, essentially, the roots of the Premier League um, started in an era, era without television, without, practically without radio, and certainly no smartphones or uh, you know, a dozen other sports that people, three dozen other sports that people could watch globally. And so the, the fight that women are making uh, to gain a foothold in the marketplace is um, much more difficult than the men had. I mean, the men have had you know, a century to, to gain a foothold. So um, I, I think that the federations all, not just in England, but around the world, need to remember that and to think about what they can do to, um, you know, so sort of steadily invest and just give give women the best chance to succeed. I, I think people people sort of fixate on on equality, and and I think the U.S. Women's Team won after that because of their record and because, you know, when you sue, that's sort of what the law says. But um, I think what federations around the world and and women who support women's football should look at is. Is, is our federation doing everything it can to give women and the women's game the greatest chance to thrive, whatever that means? Um, and, you know, in some sports, that means maybe you're half as popular as the men. In some sports, like, for instance, in gymnastics or figure skating, it means you're significantly more popular than the men. It, it, you know, the question is, what are you doing to sort of lift the ceiling completely from how big the women's game can be? And I think the U.S. has shown that if you have a very high achieving women's team, it, it can become by several measures more popular than the men. And um, not that it's a contest, but I, I think you know women have fought very hard and have had some advantages, but have fought very hard to achieve that, um, that place in, in this country. And, um, and they've, they've shown what what that kind of fight can produce, which is a which is an enormously popular team. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have you ever wondered what happened to all those space age promises that previous generations thought we'd have by now? You know, heading out for the day on your own personal flying cars or working on a space hotel somewhere in the far reaches of our solar system. Where are all those amazing inventions? Well, we're here to find out more on my new podcast, Where's My Jetpack? I'm Sarah Credis, space expert, TV host and author. Join me and Luke Moore every week as we look into retrofuturistic tech that never was to decide whether it's still just science fiction or if some of these discoveries are actually a lot closer than you think. I think we're very close to that happening on a, an even more regular basis. And what I think is interesting about that too is that's going to make the accessibility of getting to space available for more and more people. So, if you've ever wondered whether we'll one day speak to aliens light years away or you'll be flying to work on a jetpack, this is the podcast for you. Think of the car parking spaces. They're these massive, no, really No, the wings can fold up. Well, they don't exist. No, some of the cars um, which were designed had wings which folded up. Are you happy getting in a plane knowing the wings fold up? Yeah. I, right. I trust engineering. Trust the science. Search Where's My Jetpack on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Where's My Jetpack is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. We have a final this weekend. It's weird because we had last season's FA Cup final in December. It feels like we've actually kind of been a bit spoiled with, with big finals. Yeah, and, and it's weird when there's like other games on at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I, I'm i quite excited for a Saturday 5.15 kickoff. I think that's quite nice. Yeah, I love that. It makes the kind of post-match celebrations a little bit easier to enjoy. Yeah, I feel like it's not too early. It's not too late. And I also prefer football on Saturday. Sorry, guys. I just got to say I prefer football on Saturday. It's the sacred day for football. So Amen. I love football on Saturday. And Plough Lane, I've been there a lot. I know a lot of, lot of people have been there before. So I'm very excited for people to get get a little sight on Plough Lane. I hope the usual food, they've got a really nice thing. This is my little Plough Lane plug. Um, behind one of the stands, they've got this like whole section of like little food stalls and it's really nice it's kind of like a little food market so I'm really hoping they're going to be open for the game Um, they've got loads of different things going on and no no wait to hear this it's obviously AFC Wimbledon are a Phoenix club so they we won't get into won't get to the rise for the ashes type thing yeah we won't get into a politics of it but they've got a pub underneath the stadium I heard that the bowels of the stadium called the Phoenix and it's actually really nice and they've got loads of craft beers and stuff Lovely. So I'm hoping that will be open too. So great vibes, great times. If you haven't already got a ticket, I don't know if it's sold out, but if it isn't sold out, you should definitely come because I just love Plough Lane and I love Wimbledon, what they're about. I really hope the cameras picked up Chloe and my eyes when you started going on about the exciting thing you really wanted to tell us, that look we shared. Yeah, you was... were rude, actually. You guys rolled it's your not eyes. Rude. It's, not rude. it's out of order. You know and when I'm doing Jaeger bombs in the Phoenix on Saturday at full time, I'm getting when you. When you fall any. down the stairs, I'm again, not getting you. And damage your ribs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll be fine. But I just anyway. love it because we get one of these generally every pod where you're about to say something wacky and wild, and we share these looks, and it's lovely. I'm just mm. a walking, talking trip advisor. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we have. Let's get to back to the football. Uh, oh, that's my oh yeah, my food and drink thing. plug. Um, but it's a really exciting game because Man City do this thing to me, man. I can't I can't explain it, but it's like 
every, every so often I see sparks of, I'm like, Man City are back, this is it. And then they kind of regress a little bit and then they do it again. But it makes it so hard to actually get a sense of how good they are at the moment. And I think you get that sometimes with WSL because there are t- some teams that are still a lot stronger than others, but we're seeing that gap kind of narrow a little bit. But for example, before the international break, it took a Caroline Weir worldie to get City past United. FA Cup at the weekend, United take the lead, Katie Zellen was running the show and City just turn on the heat, become absolutely ruthless and end up winning 4-1 and scoring three goals in what, like 10, 15 minutes. So I'm, I, I, it's just so hard to get a gauge of when they come up against Chelsea, how good are they going to be? What kind of team are they going to be? Because actually Chelsea this season have kind of shown that, you know, City struggled to make Chelsea really work that hard. Yeah, I do think with the game at the weekend that, you know, a lot of that, unfortunately, is Man United's poor second half performance. You know, I think some of the goals were errors um, and obviously Man City were ruthless. I think when Chelsea turn up to finals, they generally turn up to finals. Um, so I, w- I wouldn't expect them, I'm going to go and jinx them, but I wouldn't expect them to be making those kind of errors or to necessarily switch off in the second half. You know, I didn't expect that from United either. Um, but I will say, while City obviously played well, I do think a big factor of that was United kind of switching off in that second half. And I don't expect to see that against Chelsea. Um, Chelsea equally had a pretty ruthless performance uh, at the weekend too that will fill them with confidence so I think both teams will be going in with lots of confidence and hopefully will make for quite the riveting battle hopefully not that kind of I hope it's not like penalties because I don't want you remember that Arsenal City Conti Cup I think it might have been 2018 um, was it 2018 or 2019 but that went to a penalty shootout and it was just really boring yeah I, I love a penalty I think, shootout nah I think there'll be goals I think there'll be goals with that team with the likes of Caroline Weir and the form she's in I hope, um, so. With I hope the, so. With Millie Bright, Millie scoring form. You know, yeah, forward, new forward, whack her up there with Harder <laughs> and Kerr and Kirby and everyone else. And yeah, I think I think we're in for some goals. And again, hope I don't jinx that because the last time we did some great predictions, it all went down the pan. So yeah, and I mean Chelsea's record against City is really good. They oh, have, yeah. City haven't beaten Chelsea in nine meetings, so you would also think that they feel pretty confident because. Yeah, like I said, I think they've kind of got their number. I mean, where do you see this one, Chloe? Are you feeling like City will push Chelsea quite hard? Do you think Chelsea are gonna gonna ease through? I'm gonna put my what do you say, peg in the sand, flag in the sand. What do you say, peg? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> this, this has gone weird again. Fuck's sake! Oh every, god, now you're gonna be week. making weird looks at I'm Flo. I'm gonna share a look, Flo. It's not supposed Ooh. to go like this. Peg in the sand. It's just I've literally, literally never heard the phrase peg in the sand until no, today. No, i put my black. Peg in the sand. Flag. Chloe Morgan, the 2022. <laughs> anyway, carry on, please. It's been a difficult day as tube strikes. It's been, a long, it's been a long old day. Come on. Yeah. Um, anyway, who are you pegging? <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm out of it. No, joking. <laughs> I'm going to say... <laughs> Oh dear. Chelsea. I think Chelsea have got this all day. It's gone to pot in here. Um, I think Chelsea have got this all day. I think um, the confidence that they've shown, the consistency that they've shown all season is just enough to take them through. Their defensive record is the best in the WSL. Millie Bright, I think, is probably going to put in an absolute banger. She's been consistently on good form and goal scoring form. So, yeah, I don't think, um, I think City will put up a good fight for sure. They're, they're sort of found their, found their feet a little bit, but I, I still think Chelsea are going to come through and deliver the goods I would agree and I'll probably be made a fool of again um, but I think Emma Hayes is a better tactician um, oh 100% mm-hmm. so when it comes to, and, and in finals particularly so I think that just gives the team an extra layer but I do think we're going to see goals I really want to see goals and last time we said that about Arsenal Chelsea and it was a bloody nil-nil draw so if I don't see goals I'm, I'm walking out yeah there were still question marks as well about Chelsea's squad coming back from the international break fitness wise we know obviously Steph Horton uh, is undergoing uh, surgery for an Achilles injury, which isn't great for City. But I think they still have a fairly you know strong squad at the moment. Lauren Hemp, Caroline Wynn, sensational form. Um, but Chelsea still have a few absentees and and feels like their squad will work particularly hard during the international break, especially the ones that went away with England. Um, you'll be going to the Conti Cup final. I will. At Powell Lane in the Phoenix. I love the fact that it's on a Saturday. I can I just go and see a game. And then where are you on Sunday? 
Uh, we have Coventry at home. Yeah, which will be interesting. So it'll be the first time I've obviously played them since all the um, the hoo ha went down over Christmas. Um, but uh, yeah, it should be it should be an interesting game. We're p- picking up some points. Um, yeah, looking to to end the league on a on a strong note. So um, yeah, it's a game that we're we're expecting to to get some points out of. Love it. And where are you Sunday, Rachel? Sunday, I will be Reading Spurs, and Sophie will be coming down to your game. Lovely. Yes, we'll see her there. Yes, love that. I'm. I'm Put in a good performance, you might talk to you after. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I've got two Arsenal games this week. I'm at Borenwood on Wednesday night and I'm at Borenwood on Sunday. So, um, yeah, there we go. A lot of Arsenal, but what a week. See you at the Conti Cup final, lads. Uh, that is all we've got time for on today's episode of Upfront on Football Ramble Presents. Thanks a lot to Rachel Backman for uh, giving us her time. And also, yeah, we hope you enjoyed that chat about uh, contracts and, and we're definitely going to get back into that as well at another stage with Chloe's lawyer hat always firmly on um, if you've got any questions as well tweet us at football ramble at Floyd tweet at girls on the ball or at Morgie underscore 89 and we'll see you all next week Upfront is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.